You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Welcome. Glad you're here today. It's good to see you. If you're a guest with us, I want to especially welcome you. My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer and glad that you're with us. We're going to get back to the text in just a moment, but before we do, I want to just uh, tell you, uh, I've been asked to, to tell you that we are six weeks, less than six weeks away from our marriage retreat this spring, and we are excited about that marriage retreat for so many reasons. One is that when our team first started planning the marriage retreat uh, for this year, um, we were praying and hoping that we'd have 15 couples there. We've never done a marriage retreat in the 10 years that this church has existed, and so we were thinking, hey, 15 couples, that would be awesome, be a great deposit to strengthen marriages in this church. And then we looked up after a month, and we had booked 15 rooms, and we had to expand that and book 30 rooms. And we are like, how awesome. And then we looked up last week, and we were over 30 couples, and we had to book an extra 10 rooms. So there are seven spots left. And so if you've kind of been on the fence about this marriage retreat, um, I just want to encourage you to really consider jumping in. God is, we, we just believe God's going to do a great work among the married people in this church at that retreat. Uh, and so consider joining us. Seven spots left. There is one scholarship available. And so if that's been a hindrance for you, uh, there are uh, generous people in this church that have uh, wanted to scholarship, and maybe that was just for you. And so would you consider that? Here's the details real quick. March 24th, 25th. We'll be at the Lone Star Court in the Domain. It's a, um, what's the name? What is, what are the, it's bougie, right? A bougie hotel. It's a bougie hotel in, uh, in North Austin at the Domain. That way it's close so we could all be back here for, for Sunday. Uh, Bruce and Susan Wesley will be with us all day Saturday. Bruce is a pastor of uh, Clear Creek Community Church in League City, which is a, just an awesome church. He's been there for decades uh, he and his wife, Susan, have been married for decades, and they will be leading the retreat uh, on Saturday, Five Ways to Cultivate Intimacy in Your Marriage. And so it's going to be a great time. We'll kick off that Friday night. We've uh, rented space at a place called Punchbowl Social, which would be just a great time to have fun with your spouse, to uh, cultivate community with other married people in the church. So there you go. My commercial's over. If you've been on the fence, uh, jump in, get registered. We'd love for you to join us. Was that good, Aaron? That was great. Okay, awesome. All right. Mark chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible open to Mark 12, I want to encourage you to turn there. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're walking with Jesus scene by scene. We're going to arrive to the cross and to the resurrection by Good Friday and Easter. And as we are in chapter 12, here's kind of what we've seen if you've been in or out the last few weeks. Jesus is in the final week of his earthly life and ministry. He's arrived to Jerusalem. He's entered the city. He has created quite the scene in the temple, and he is not liked by the authorities of his day at this point. We saw this last week. There was a confrontation where the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the authorities of the day, confront him, essentially ask him the question, who do you think you are? They're trying to stifle his power and his movement, and it didn't work. And so as we pick up in Mark chapter 12 today in verse 13, what we see is we see that they are, are kind of uh, turning to a different tactic. They can't intimidate Jesus. That didn't work. And so now their new tactic is that they're going to try and create controversy. They're going to sling mud, in other words. They're going to try and create some controversy and get his followers to turn on him. Maybe this is how they can uh, stifle his movement and get rid of him. In and, and chapter 11, verse 18, we're told that they wanted to destroy him. And chapter 12, verse 12, 
They want to arrest him, but they fear the crowds. It is the Passover, after all, and he has quite the following. They don't want to start a revolution, and so they decide, now we're going to sling mud. And so in chapter 12, we have a series of questions. They come to him with a series of questions. First, in our text today, is a political question. So they, they're basically bringing up politics at Thanksgiving. Okay, I mean, that's, that's the deal here. They're, they're bringing him a political question, and we'll, we'll get into that. Then, and then, and that, that's not going to work, uh, spoiler alert. And then they're going to bring him a theological question next, and then they're going to bring him a moral question. And all of this, the intent in all of this is to create controversy, twist his words, warp his words, and get his people to turn on him. Okay? And so our text today, verses 13 through 17, is a political question. And you have to realize... Jesus has been unifying people during divided times. In Jesus' day, Israel was, was incredibly divided. Um, uh, so you can think of it this way. I mean, Israel is, is a nation with a proud history and a proud heritage, all that God has done among them. Um, they have a promised future. There's hopes of what they will become, this promise of this Messiah that's going to come and lift them up. But yet here they are under the occupation of the Roman Empire. Um, Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry, is ruled by Herod, appointed by Rome. And then Judea, Jerusalem, where they are now, is governed by Pontius Pilate, appointed by Rome. And, and all of this is overseen by the great emperor, Tiberius Caesar. And so among the people of Jesus' day, among the Israelites, there's this desire for freedom. And this, they, they, they're, they're sick of Rome. They're taxed enough by Rome. They're ready for freedom and they're ready for their future. And there are all these different political ideas that are existing in Jesus's day of what it would look like to achieve that freedom and to step into that future. And you read about these different groups and these different ideas in your New Testament, right? There's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, kind of the most prominent leaders of Jesus's day, and their political vision was that we got to get the people of God pure. And if we obey the Torah and all of the oral teachings, and we get God's people pure, then the Messiah will come, and our nation, our, their political vision was that through purity, God's people will be raised up into their glorious future. There were the Sadducees, who were kind of like the Pharisees, but they were a little more uh, friendly to, to, the, to, to the Roman authorities, right? So they were maybe a little more moderate. And then there were these groups on the extremes, there were the Essenes who were kind of your, hey, listen, uh, Rome is wicked and evil. We're going to live out in the wilderness, kind of your doomsday prepper kind of people. We're going to live out in the wilderness and we're going to worship God and the Messiah will come to us because we'll be the pure people. Then there were on the other end of the spectrum, there was kind of this subculture, the zealots. Uh, one of Jesus' own disciples that he calls was Simon the Zealot, right? This is, he was a very political guy. You could think of him that way. He had like bumper stickers and wore the t-shirts, Okay. And the zealots thought that they were, they, they were the opposite of the Essenes. They weren't going to retreat. They were ready to, 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 to riot. They were ready to, to, to fight Rome and gain their freedom. What's my point? There's all of this, these political visions. It was a divided time, and Jesus has been unifying people. He has been calling people from different backgrounds. You have Matthew, the tax collector. You had Simon the Zealot. You had Rich. You had Poor. He's calling people together. And so you better believe that in these great crowds that, that, that are following Jesus, there's a diversity of political thought among the people. And so what do the leaders of Israel, what do they do here? They see an opportunity. There's an opportunity. There's this is a political time, political division, political ideologies. Let's trap Jesus. 
That's what's going on. Three things today. I want to understand the trap. I want to talk about the coin. And I want to marvel at Jesus' words. Look at the trap. Talk about the coin. Marvel at Jesus' words. Let me pray. We'll get back into the text. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we open it, that as we look at it, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see and to perceive and to understand how great you truly are, how gracious you are, how true you are. Would you help us to see our need for you today and how you meet our need in every way? And most of all, as we look at this passage, would you bring into view our allegiance this morning? I pray that you would help us by your grace and through your Spirit's power to give all of our allegiance to you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's look back at the text, verses 13 and 14. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They want to sling some mud here. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinions. They've learned that, haven't they, over the last couple of days? For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not? Everything about this reeks from the beginning, by the way. Everything about this. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they are political rivals. The Herodians, some scholars would say that the Herodians, that members of the Herodians even thought that Herod was the true Messiah. So they were, they, 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 they were some of them, they, they, they did not mind Rome at all. We'll put it that way. And you had the Pharisees who despised Rome and they wanted freedom from Rome through purity of God's people. And so the, here's, we got two who are literally political opponents that are against one another, but yet now they are teaming up on this deal. So something is clearly up as they come to Jesus. Verse 14 couldn't make it any more clear that they are trying to bait Jesus. They are buttering him up with their words. I mean, look back at it. Um, we know that you're true, that you don't care about people's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances. You are the true teacher. What are they doing here? They're trying to butter him up to get him to speak confidently and boldly and say something with some strength behind it so that they can twist it and they can divide the people. And then they ask him the question, and it is a lightning rod of a question. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not? I want you to notice what they want here is they want a black and white answer. They repeat it. Yes or no, Jesus. Now, I think it's important that we make sure that we really understand the question that they are asking here. There are many people over the years who will use this text um, and, and kind of moralize this text. And so it will become a text about whether or not Christians should pay taxes. Should we pay taxes? There are others that will take this text and they will argue uh, kind of our American political vision for separation of church and state. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. State and church. But I want you to know that, that neither one of these are really the question in the text. This is not a text about paying taxes, although there are implications for that. This is not a text about separation of church and state. This is a political question that they're asking him. They are asking him, Jesus, tell us how you feel and therefore how we ought to feel about Rome. They're saying, Jesus, are you king or is Caesar king? That's the question. It's a political question. How do I know this? Well, because the, 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 what they're asking Jesus about here is not about taxes in general. They're asking Jesus about a specific tax, not about taxes in general. 
They're asking him about what was called a tribute tax or a head tax. If you're taking notes, write that down. That's why they reference Caesar here. Um, the Israelites lived under extreme taxation. Some scholars would say up to 80 to 90% of their income was taxed. But this was especially true under Herod. Herod taxed everything. He taxed goods and services. And even there was temple tax that you had to pay if you wanted to worship your God. That, that's kind of, by the way, that's why the Roman Empire was so powerful in ancient history. They would occupy you through their military and they would suppress you through taxation. And they'd go, but hey, you've got security. You've got infrastructure, you've got roads, aren't you glad to be a Roman? You know, that's kind, of, that's kind of the way it works. They're not talking about the general taxes at all. This is a specific tax. It's why they reference Caesar here, not Herod. This was Caesar's tax. It's also why Jesus asked for a specific coin. He asked for a denarius. This tax, this tribute tax or this head tax, it had to, had to be paid with a denarius. This was Caesar's coin. The Jewish people mostly used and carried copper coins. And so this is a specific tax referencing a specific coin. Uh, the, the tribute tax was paid once a year per person, and a denarius was about the, um, about the amount of a day's wage for a laborer. So it's not like it's even an extreme tax. They probably felt about it kind of like you feel when your HOA dues uh, roll around, right? It's never really going to kill you, but you don't like it, you know? And so this isn't about taxation. This is about allegiance. This is about loyalty. Everything about this coin, the denarius, was repulsive to most among Israel. To the Pharisees, it was certainly repulsive. Pharisees wouldn't even carry a denarius. And they would teach people not to carry it, but to carry the copper coins. It was certainly repulsive to the zealots who wanted to storm Rome. It was repulsive to the Essenes. And it was repulsive to most of the common people. There are three things I want us to understand about the coin. In fact, I think I have an image of the tribute penny, of the denarius. Do we have that? Maybe? Yes, there it is. Okay. By the way, you could buy one of these on eBay today if you want, but it'll cost you about two or $3,000. Um, but there's still a lot of these that are available. So this is the denarius. Three things I want to point out about this coin first. It's called a tribute penny. It was called a tribute penny. And so by its very nature, it's telling us why it exists. It's a tribute, and it's a tribute to Caesar. It, it was a means by which every person in the Roman Empire had to essentially acknowledge and honor and give thanks to Caesar once a year. So by its very nature, what is it? It's an offering. It, 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 it's, it's I'm giving something back to Caesar to thank Caesar and to, to say, you know, basically praise be to Caesar. So you could see why most among the Jewish people despise the coin. Second, it bears the face of Tiberius Caesar. His image is graven on an offering. So everything about that graven image on an offering, feels like it's breaking the most essential commandments of the Israelites. We shouldn't worship anyone else. We don't make offerings to other gods. No graven images among you. And then finally, anybody read Latin? Anybody here that reads Latin? You probably couldn't see this anyway. On the back side of the coin, on the coin, around the head of Tiberius Caesar, on this side, in Latin, what it says is it says, the divine son of a god. And then on the back side, on this side, it says, the great high priest. So what is this coin? <laughs> it is very literally an offering 
saying, Give thanks, praise be to the Son of a God and the great high priest, Tiberius Caesar. Do you see the question that they are asking him? This is a political question. Do you understand the trap? This is not about taxation. This is not about separation of church and state. It's about allegiance. Should we pay or should we not, Jesus? Are you the true king or is Caesar the true king? Which is it? If Jesus says no, don't pay the tax, then what happens? If he says no, don't pay the tax, he give, gives grounds to the Pharisees and the Herodians to go back to Rome and say, see, he's a revolutionary, he's starting a revolution, arrest him. And they certainly would. If he says yes, pay the tax, then they're able to say, see, he's not the true king, we told you. He's just some spiritual teacher. He's not doing anything about Rome. And Jesus loses the people. It's a trap. What does Jesus say? Look back at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus' response, we read it in a couple of verses, and we go, hmm. His response is like a stick of dynamite. There is a lot that's packed in here, okay? They marvel. His words are remarkable. I want to, three things about his words. First, he perceives their trap. Um, the, the, the verse tells us that he knows their hypocrisy. Imagine being in this crowd. I mean, this would have been like, it's obvious that Jesus is on like a different playing field than them. That, that, that Jesus is just displaying his superior wisdom and power. He, he knows their trap. The word for knows there is that he perceives or sees from far off. He knows their trap from far off. He knows their hypocrisy. And, and when the Bible uses the word hypocrisy, it's not quite the same way that you and I would use the word hypocrisy today. We often think someone is a hypocrite when they, they say one thing, but then they do another thing, right? That's a hypocrite. In Jesus's day, the word was used very literally. It very literally meant mask-wearing play actors. Like you would go to the stage, you'd go to the theater, and there were hypocrites. Mask-wearing play actors. And so Jesus is saying here that he can see from far off that these men are nothing more than mask-wearing play actors. And I think that we should just pause for a moment and acknowledge the power of this truth, that Jesus sees. He is the God who sees. He knows. He knows you and he knows me. He knows how you came in here today, and he knows how I stand up here today. And there is both warning and blessing in this reality that he is the God who sees, that he is the God who perceives. The warning is that for those who live their life as mask-wearing play actors, who have hidden sin, who live double lives, maybe you can dupe your spouse, and maybe you can dupe your friends, and maybe you can dupe your coworkers, but the Lord Jesus Christ sees. He knows you, and he sees you. And he will always bring the things that are in darkness to light. Would you hear the warning that the Lord Jesus Christ, when we sit under his authority and his word this morning, sees you and he knows you, the real you. There is also a great blessing in this reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is the God who sees. 
The blessing is that as we come to him, we can come to him as we truly are because he knows it anyway. He sees us. We don't have to uh, cover things up. We don't have to perform or pretend for God. He sees us and he very literally lives right now to give grace to those who come to him humbly and pure in heart. Isn't that beautiful? And so no matter who you are, we all come to Jesus in our sin. We all come to Jesus with brokenness and idols in our heart. The question is, how do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him pretending and performing and projecting, or do you come to him humbly, pure in heart, knowing that he is the God who sees? He's the God who gives grace, and he's the God who redeems. And so they're amazed. It's remarkable. He perceives. He knows their trap. The second thing that's remarkable about what Jesus says is that he refuses to be put into one of their boxes. Jesus transcends political boxes. Um, He refuses to fit into their camp. Are you with the Pharisees? Are you with the Herodians? Who are you with? Who's right? Is it right? Is it left? In fact, Jesus actually, by what he says, he actually offends both the Herodians and the Pharisees. Um, The fact that Jesus asked for the coin is significant, okay? One thing, it tells you that he's not carrying it. Another thing, he outs the politics of the crowd, all right? It would be like your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner that said, all right, who voted for Biden? Who voted for Trump? You know, like, oh, Jesus asked for the coin. And so he's outing who are the people that are carrying the coin? Not the Pharisees, it better not be. Not the zealots. And so he asked for the coin, and someone's like, I got one. Pass it to Jesus. So he's, he's offending people by just having the coin and holding up the coin and asking them to consider the coin. But N.T. Wright says that he also would be offending the, the Herodians here by his response when he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, N.T. Wright says that the language here is actually contemptuous. It would be like Jesus saying, Uh, send this filthy thing back to where it came from. And we'll get into that more in a minute. But he won't fit into their political boxes. He actually offends both of them. And I want you to know that the same thing is true with us today. Please hear me. Jesus will not fit into our modern political boxes. He won't do it. He will not fit into right. He will not fit into left. He will not fit conservative. He will not fit liberal. He will not fit democratic. He will not fit, what's the other one? Republican. Why? Why? Because earthly political expressions are far too small for the Lord Jesus Christ. They are far too small. Will you please hear this? To say it another way, the magnitude of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom that is coming is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than any earthly political vision can dare dream. The kingdom of God. This is why followers of Jesus Christ should have trouble fitting nicely and neatly and comfortably into either of our political parties today. Please hear me. Please. Neither political vision in our country fully represents the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. They are far too narrow. They are too shallow. They are too modern. They are too foolish for the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Yes, they might have some aspects of Jesus and his truth and his kingdom sprinkled in, but they are not big enough or beautiful enough for us to find our home as citizens of a coming kingdom. Let me just give you an example of this, why this matters. Remember, what is the point of the text? These 
religious leaders are trying to divide up people that Jesus has unified. Okay? What are political visions in this country are trying to divide up people that the Lord Jesus Christ has unified? Let me just give you an example of of what this would look like. There might be some of you in this room that have strong biblical conviction about this earth and how we ought to care for this earth. You might say, the Bible is very clear in Genesis chapter 1 that God created this earth and that he's called us as human beings on the earth to care for it and to subdue it, to cultivate it, and we should care for the earth. And that conviction, that is a biblical conviction, might lead you to cast a vote one way or the other. And there are other people in this church and in this congregation, they might have a desire, a deep desire for safety, that we need to protect people and the innocent and the vulnerable. And we need, to, we need to make sure that my family is strong and protected. And it's a good desire. And it might lead you to have certain convictions about things like gun control or border control or military. And you might cast your vote one way or the other. And there are others in this church that are, have deep, righteous anger about issues of injustice, whether it be racial inequalities or it be the, the, the killing of unborn children in the womb. And your passion for godly justice might lead you to cast your vote one way or the other. There's others of you that are like, man, listen, all that stuff is too, too, too much for me. Well, here's what I know. I know that I want to work hard. I want to provide for my family. I want to make generational impact. I've been called to lead a company that, that impacts our community. And so as you think about your, your work and business, it might lead you to vote one way or the other. Here's my point. All of these things are longings for the kingdom of God. All of them. Every one of them that I just mentioned. And more. Things like justice and life and equality and eternal safety and security, and the renewal of all creation, prosperity, all of it, belong to Jesus and his kingdom. They are all Jesus Christ promises, things that Jesus Christ will bring to this earth in full when he comes again. And that's good news for us as citizens of his kingdom. And every earthly political vision might have a few of those things sprinkled in, but they're so small, and they all fall short. Worldly politics is too weak to hold all of the longings of the human heart and all of our desires for this place, this world that we call home. Jesus will not fit into our political boxes. He supersedes them. He's doing something bigger than Rome. That's the point that he's making. I'm doing something that's bigger than Roman politics. He's doing something that's bigger than American politics politics. And which leads to the third point about why they marvel. One, he perceives and he knows. Two, he won't fit into their boxes. And three, he demands full allegiance to him and his kingdom. In other words, this doesn't mean that we become apolitical. Please don't mishear me. That's not what it means at all. But he's calling them to see that, yes, Rome is ruling, but Rome isn't really ruling. God is ruling. That's the point that he makes. God is ruling, not Rome. And so he calls them to full allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom right where their feet is planted. He holds up the coin. Listen to what he says, verse 16. He holds up the coin and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness and inscription? If we had the picture, let's go back to it. Yeah, imagine him holding it up. Whose likeness? It's it's the word image. It's, It's the Greek word icon. It's the same exact word that's in Genesis 1.26, where the Bible says that human beings were created in the 
icon and the image and likeness of God. He says, who's, who's image? Who, who's inscription? That means message or banner. Who, whose message or banner is on this? And the answer is obvious. It's, it's Caesar's. In fact, in my study this week, one of the things that I learned that I thought was incredible is that Caesar actually minted these coins and circulated them. In other words, these coins didn't cost people anything. They were circulated, minted and circulated by Caesar. In other words, he minted them out of his own wealth and circulated them so that it could be given back to him, Caesar did. And so Jesus is essentially saying, it's got Caesar's image, it's got Caesar's likeness, it came from his wealth, it's his coin, give the thing to Caesar, give him his coin, and give to God what is God's. And we should ask the question, Jesus, what is God's? Do you see the power of this? Do you see the potency of this? What is it that carries God's image and likeness? What is it that has been chosen by the sovereign God to carry his inscription and his message to the nations? What is it that God has made out of the abundance of his own wealth to be given back to him? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's you. Jesus is saying, it's you. He's saying, you were made by God. You were made for God. Israel, you've been chosen to bear his image and carry his message and represent him to the world. Give yourself to God, fully to God, all of your allegiance, right where you're planted. Rome isn't really ruling you. God is ruling you. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. And Jesus is saying the same thing to you and I this morning. Give all of yourself, all of your allegiance, all of your hope to Jesus. He supersedes the politics of our day. His power and his purposes are what we ought to be extending. As long, Jesus is essentially saying here, listen, as long as Caesar has a coin, give it to coin, give him his coin, but give your life to God. Jesus demands our all. What a message, right? I mean, now no wonder they marvel. I hope you see why they're marveling at what he just, in just a few moments, what Jesus has done here. Wow. He's blown up our boxes. He's exploding our paradigms, our political paradigms. And he's demanding our lives. So what do we do with this, church? Well, first, I think it's worth acknowledging that there are too many Christians who give a political party their full allegiance. And um, even in churches. I mean, I see this in churches. And it is not the way. Like using the pulpit to paint Jesus in the picture of of a Republican or a liberal. On both sides. It's on both sides. This is not the way. As citizens of the United States, here is our responsibility as, as Christian. Uh, our responsibility as citizens of the United States is that we ought to love our country. We ought to love our country. We ought to pray for our country. We ought to cast our vote. And we do so in light of our convictions that God has given us. We ought to work for the welfare of our country. And for some of us, that looks like working for justice. For some of us, that, work, that looks like working to protect freedoms. We ought to cast our vote. We ought to work for the welfare of our country. But we never give our hope and our allegiance to anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. We seek in all things to live our lives distinctly for Christ and his kingdom. And so I want to ask us, how do we know if we're doing that? How do we know if Jesus Christ has our full allegiance, that we aren't trying to paint him into some other image. How do we know? What does it look like for us? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for me? What does it look like for this church? 
to give Jesus Christ our full allegiance. Three things as we close. First, I think that our lives ought to be, must be marked by worship and devotion to Jesus. Um, I want you to think about someone who knows you, a neighbor, a coworker. Would they say this about you, that, that, that your life is marked by worship and devotion to Jesus? It's really easy to be a Christian in name today who worships, who worships and is devoted to other things. It's really easy to be a Christian in name, but to really be devoted to career above all, to really be devoted to our kids above all, to really be devoted to our finances above all, on and on and on, to our reputation above all, to really be devoted to American politics above all, on and on and on. And this is not the way. It's also easy to be a, to be a, a Christian and, and to turn to other hopes or to other comforts in our moments of disappointment or chaos or crisis in life. It's easy to, to look to other things to put our hope in other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first and foremost is our life marked by a devotion and a worship of Jesus Christ above all. Second, is our life marked by holiness and humility? You want, you want to know a, a sign that your life is devoted to Jesus above all? That you start to look like Jesus. You start to live like Jesus. We start to grow in holiness and in humility. I think this is especially important with our words in today's culture, in today's climate. Is Christ what's on our lips? Is Christ our hope? Do we encourage? Do we build up? Or have we grown cynical and hopeless and tear down? I think it's also important in our current climate, in our current culture with our body, particularly with sexuality. Are we honoring Jesus as Lord above all? And are we adhering to a biblical ethic as it relates to those things? And finally, is our life marked by love and mercy toward others? How do we know if Jesus has our full allegiance? We're devoted to him. We're becoming like him in holiness and humility. And that our life is marked by love and mercy. As citizens of the kingdom of God, living on earth, we ought to be the most generous people on the planet. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter that we have an inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven, that is imperishable and undefiled. A heavenly inheritance. And if that's true then we ought to be the most generous people on the planet. So I just want to ask you, I mean, are you using your time and your money and your skills to care for the least of these and the lost and the lonely? Are you, are you using the best of your time and the best of your skills and, and sacrificially of your resources to build up the church and its witness in the world? I think this is what it looks like to give God what is God's, to give our lives back to Jesus, our allegiance in Jesus, devotion, holiness and humility, love and mercy. Church, I want you to know that we have the opportunity today in our worship, in just a few moments, we have the opportunity with our lives to give to God what is God's, to give it back to him, to turn from any other loyalties and allegiances and to, to say, to renew our faith and to say our hope and our lives are with Christ in his kingdom, with Christ in his kingdom. Because I want you to know that the Father has given you everything that you have. He's not only given you your life and the breath in your lungs, but he's given you his son. And the son has given you all that he has, even to the point of death, death on the cross. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word, the word of his promise. He's given you the hope of heaven. What a savior we have. What a king we have. Lastly, most importantly today with this text, what a privilege that we have 
to follow and to serve and to belong to and to give our lives back to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. What a privilege. Let me pray for us and we'll enter into a time of response. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is indeed a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And I pray that you would help us today, Father, to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Help us today, even if when your scripture makes us uncomfortable, even when your scripture makes us preach something that's uncomfortable, would you help us, Lord, to be doers of your word, to receive it humbly. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for Jesus the Son. We thank you for him, how he lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved, and he raised victoriously, and that he invites us into his kingdom now, here and now. What a grace you've given to us in Jesus. What grace is available to us today as we enter into a time of response. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us during this time, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up, that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us as we take communion, as we worship, as we pray. I pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.